What is the field of geriatrics? How does a medical student choose to become a geriatrician? And finally, how do you know when to take away grandpa or grandma's car keys? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Katherine Anderson, a geriatrician here at the University of School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. We've got a great guest today, Dr. Katherine Anderson. Hello, Dr. Anderson. Hello, Dr. Chan. All right. So I'm a child psychiatrist. I live in the world of kids. and But you're a geriatrician, correct? Correct. So how did you find yourself? Because a lot of times med students ask me, how did you become, you know, what kind of, how did you choose to become the doctor you are? And I think it's very interesting. You chose geriatrics. How did you choose that path? Well, I have a bit of a convoluted story. And if I you were... you got plenty of time. <laughs> if I were... Sitting here listening to this as a medical student in your shoes, I never, ever would have thought I would have become a geriatrician. So I had initially entered into the uh, medical school at University of Washington, anticipating that I would go into urology. Mm. And partway down the road, I decided to actually apply in urology. But then my husband of many years decided he actually wanted to go to medical school as well. So we knew that he was going to go into orthopedics because he had been at orthopedic PA for about five, seven years at that time. And after much thinking about it, we decided we couldn't have a two surgeon household Mm -hmm. because that was not congruent with what our lifestyle goals were in the long term. So for those of you who are unaware, what does a two surgeon household look like? What's the stereotype? (laughs) The stereotype of many of the couples that we interviewed were marriages that weren't lasting, unfortunately. So, or marriages that were strained. A lot lot of stress. No kids. um, Very dedicated to work. Great cars. Great traveling. Yes. But not a lot of when time. When someone falls and breaks their elbow in the neighborhood, you guys kind of compete to who can, right. like, you know, cut them open on the kitchen table. Right, 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 right. So, right, okay. right. right. Yeah. so I decided there were a lot of things I loved, and I loved medicine, which is what was one of the things that attracted me to urology, because it was a nice combination of medicine and surgery. And along the way, um, I decided that really I loved the procedure-based specialties, But again, that was lifestyle was kind of coming down to be really, really important. And I had this group of women in my continuity clinic that I just fell in love with. And they were in their 60s and 70s, but very vibrant, really active, many of them still working and engaged in their community. And they started to have a number of issues. But the answers I always got were, well, they're just getting older. They're just getting older. There's nothing that, you know, this is just age. And I thought there has to be something more that we can actually do for these women. So as a third year resident, I had two different job offers, ended up turning them both down and selecting to go into geriatrics. I thought I'm going to do a one year fellowship and then I will be able to better take care of this patient population. So it's an internal medicine residency, three years, and then it's a one year fellowship on top of that. One-year clinical fellowship, and you can do up to two additional years. So I did a two-year fellowship, one-year clinical, and one-year based in education. Can family practitioners do this fellowship, or is it only internal medicine docs? Family practice can as well. Okay. All right. So, okay. So... And was that here at the University of Utah? It was here at the University of Utah. So tell me about the program here. So the program here offers both... let's say, uh, academic and clinical track. And so if you are doing clinical track, it's one year. We have it 
uh, based at, primarily at the VA University Hospitals and then a couple of nursing homes around town. And the nice thing about this fellowship is it's very diversified, meaning you get a lot of different experiences. Because one of the things that I didn't appreciate about geriatrics when I went into it was that you can come out and essentially practice in any setting you want, whether it's hospital, clinic, nursing home, research. Um, there are a lot of different avenues. Mm-hmm. So it's very flexible. Mm-hmm. And so depending upon what folks come in wanting to do, we can tailor a uh, fellowship to meet their needs so that they can step into the role that they want to when they're done. Awesome. I should have the the the, uh, the fellowship director come on. Is it, is it a big fellowship? Is it like one or two fellows a year? Is there more? Or? So we have three fellowship spots a year. Okay. And there are some bigger fellowships in the country um, that have, you know, five to seven. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a very common specialty. There's only about 7,000 geriatricians in the country. Mm-hmm. And given the, as everybody knows, the silver tsunami with the baby boomers turning Is that 65. what they call it now? The silver tsunami? The silver tsunami, yeah. Okay, wow. See, you are in touch with the geriatric <laughs> culture. I had no idea that was the term. So I always heard baby boomers are getting older, but now there's a yeah, silver tsunami. Yeah, there's the silver tsunami. Okay. So, um, I mean, that basically means that for... One geriatrician, there's about 4,000 older adults that we need to take care of in about the year 2020. Mm. And that's just not realistic. Yeah. So Wow. So it sounds like job the job prospects are great. Oh, yes. Well, patient populations are, you know, everyone's getting older. And I do know it's a concern because I think, you know, when you think about our own mothers and fathers, our own grandparents, we need to have, you know, they need quality care. And that's a huge issue in our country, you know. Yep. Um, and so... That, that's, I mean, that's fantastic. You became a geriatrician. But you also, there was a, like, you know, there was a, a divergent in your path. I mean, there's a different path you took that you got more involved in medical education. Yes. So how'd that come about? Because I get that question a lot. It's like, Dr. Chan, how'd you get your position? So, so that actually probably goes back farther, probably to my undergrad years when I kept bouncing back and forth between specialties or trying to figure out what I was going to major in. And I loved education. Mm-hmm. But I still, every time I stepped away from the path of going to medical school, I kept jumping back on that path. And so finally, um, it was actually my aunt, um, who is a teacher in Arizona, and she's, uh, her expertise is teaching teachers how to teach. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. And so one of the things that I realized in um, residency that we were, is that we were expected to teach junior trainees and one another, but we had never been taught how. And certain faculty seemed to get it, and others struggled a little bit more. So when we were in our division of geriatrics, we had a lot of junior faculty, many of whom felt like they wanted to learn a little bit more about education. And so... I decided to spend my second year fellowship focusing on education and faculty development, Mm -hmm. um, utilized resources from Duke, UCSF, locally here, um, to really kind of expand my knowledge about education and then just jumped in when there was an opportunity in med ed. Mm, Fantastic. And uh, now you're in charge of a a really innovative, really cool program. So can you tell us more about that? So, Dr. Chan, I think you are referring to the um, 
clinical method curriculum. Okay, CMC. Right? CMC. Okay, sometimes it's alphabet soup, so yeah. that's why I'm I'm the one asking the questions because I totally don't understand a lot of the names. <laughs> no, but, you're yeah. fine. And the alphabet soup isn't so much as important as the concept. And so this is a concept where one medical st- uh, one faculty member, a clinician, is paired with a group of about ten students, and they form what's called the learning community. Mm-hmm. So in our first year class, we have ten different learning communities, and this faculty member as well as these students work together learning kind of like doctoring skills. Mm -hmm. So history, physical exam, clinical reasoning, applied ethics, applied evidence-based medicine, those types of things. Um, Students get a lot of one-on-one feedback um, because what we know is they get a lot of good training um, in different pockets throughout our curriculum. But depending upon the path you take, which tends to diverge over the course of third and fourth year, you may or may not have somebody looking over your shoulder and uh, helping you with your technique um, or helping you reason through things clinically. And we don't want our students to um, graduate without having the essential skills, knowledge, attitudes to really function well in this dynamic healthcare environment. Excellent. And so it sounds like these learning communities, and they're sustained over a long time period, correct? So four years, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty novel because many of the schools out there that have a similar construct are on, only do this over about one year, some of them two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then students are released from their learning communities or college system and whatnot and, and follow the regular curriculum. So mm-hmm. as far as I know, we are the only school in the country to do a four-year Learning and I, cur- community I think that curriculum. really differentiates. That sep- sets us apart from other, med- other medical schools. One of the things that I know is is that so you know we've recently increased our class size, and I get questions about that. And I, what I don't think people realize is that by having more medical students, it does take up more resources. It's not like we can just Xerox or photocopy more paper tests. Right. Um, it means uh, heavily investing in the students. Uh, for their complete education, which includes these very novel, very worthwhile learning communities. So Correct. So we appreciate all the support that we can get. <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, and so what kind of – so I think this is the second year they're doing it now. Correct. What kind of feedback did you get last year? What, what, what did people think about the experience? So there was a little bit of trepidation at the beginning um, because students don't like to see themselves as guinea pigs. But I assured them that this would be – Absolutely awesome because I actually had the benefit of going to medical school at University of Washington where they started something similar. And so I knew the benefits. What we have now is better. They they were kind of in the early stages of the pioneers. (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought that they are doing some awesome things at other schools. We need to bring that here. And it wasn't even a few weeks before students totally bought into it. They loved it. We try to make it really fun, dynamic learning Mm -hmm. so that they are not sitting in the classroom um, for four hours on end um, and really applying the information that they're learning in other aspects of the foundational curriculum. What does fun, dynamic learning look like for a medical student? Well, Because I think the image is you do sit in a lot of class. Right. You do sit in a lot of class. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But... Um, I think we have some great resources here at University of Utah, the Clinical Skills Lab. We have many, you know, we have a three hospital system where students can actually go into the hospital from day one of medical school to interview a patient. Um, And so we try to 
harness the skills that they bring in with them as medical students and then develop those skills, those professional skills as they become a doctor. Mm-hmm. And so they might be doing interactive things in small groups. They will be doing um, interactive things in their learning communities. They will be doing um, large group didactics as well. Mm-hmm. So, And I think the key part of this, if I understand the program correctly, is that the physicians who are in charge of this learning community, they do not grade their own students. So it's a little bit of a gray area. They okay. do not grade when it comes to high stakes assessments, okay. right. um, they're folks in their own learning communities. But they are the best folks to grade low stakes things like homework assignments because they can follow a student's progress and individualize that feedback and make sure students are improving gradually and not, you know, letting any students fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. So it's yeah, really exciting. And next year, from an admissions standpoint, we're increasing our class size to 122. It sounds, so it sounds like you'll have 12, at least 12. Maybe yes. No so. Recruiting is starting soon. And uh, you do do kind of fun things with naming the groups, right? So the first year... The first year we looked at um, great places in Utah, um, basically national parks. So Zion, Bryce, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And the second year... They all were named ski resorts. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So let's give a little sneak peek to our listeners. What's what's next year? What's the year after going to be? Well, actually, we are. it's going to be every other. So next year, we'll go back to um, national parks here oh, in Utah or mountain ranges because the years one and three students, those folks are in the same learning community with the same core faculty. Mm -hmm. So we are envisioning that there will be mentorship from the third year class to the first year class. Awesome. Um, That's beautiful. I love that. Cool. All right. So we're almost out of time, Dr. Anderson. Um, And I'm going to spring something on you. Uh Uh Uh-oh. All right. I've I've got a geriatrician here and and you're all about education. So let's (laughs) teach our listeners something. All right. So I wrote down a question right here on this piece of paper. Because um, I know, like, you know, you talk about the silver tsunami, and I think there's a lot of trepidation, at least I think about this with my parents, is um, when do you start limiting their freedom, i.e. taking away their car keys? <laughs> All right? And I think you're an expert in this area. And so what do you look for? I mean, how do you go about having that conversation? Because I know a lot of people are worried about this, because people ask me about this a fair amount. So, and, yes. you know, even though I'm a child psychiatrist, I, I do get these type of questions. So what would you say, Dr. Anderson? So the first clarification I have is we actually, as physicians, don't take away the keys. Oh, teach us. <laughs> so teach me this. Yeah. we can make recommendations okay. to the DMV. So how does it work in Utah? How does that work how's, in Utah? How's the, how's the process? Set? So the common thing is, is... Uh, Family comes in and the daughter is scared to death to let her children drive with her father anymore um, because <laughs> okay, he... Okay, because they don't really care about the grandpa's health. They're scared <laughs> to death about the grandkids in the car. I wouldn't say that necessarily. Okay. Right. But grandpa's maybe been backing into trash cans, getting a few more you know, tickets, getting into accidents. And so if there's signs like that, we usually send them for a driver's evaluation and okay. then look at um, the results of that and then make a recommendation to the DMV. Okay. Now... Other things are much more subtle. People just get nervous because my 
you know, mom or dad is getting into their 80s and should they be driving? Mm -hmm. And so then we do a series of, you know, visual spatial testing and some cognitive screening. And then depending upon that, actually do a driving test as well with them. At the DMV or at the doctor's office? Um, We have both uh, at the DMV. Some patients can go there, but also at the VA or Sugar House Clinic. And there is another clinic downtown where occupational therapy actually administers the really? driving tests. See, I, this is why I love doing the podcast. I learn stuff myself. So. <laughs> the great thing about um, Oc Therapy, too, is that they can make accommodations to vehicles for older adults. So if there's a particular problem, it's not you like... Give an example? So, for example... Um, some folks have difficulty turning their head over their shoulder, and so they may, you know, recommend a different style of car or a different position of the seat or those t- easy types of things or a series of neck exercises to improve flexibility, mm-hmm. things that um, you wouldn't necessarily think of right off the bat. So what I'm hearing from you is, is whereas their perception, at least out in the community, is it's kind of black or white. You either have your car keys or you don't. It's you, really kind of gray. It's gray. So it sounds like there are steps, though, you can take before you get to that point. Yes. Like accommodations or, you know, oc therapy type help. So that, that's amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm curious about the DMV. Do they ever like go against your recommendation? Oh, yes. Really? Okay. And I, I assume you find out that about that later. when. Well, when they show up with their driver's license, it's been issued. They kind of like rub that in your face going, Dr. Anderson, you clearly missed this one. Yeah, I'm an excellent driver. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the important things is, you know, we live in the big city of Salt Lake. And mm-hmm. so not that it's a big city compared to others around the country, but many of these folks live in rural towns. And so what we recommend to them is actually take the test in the town that they are from because that's where they're going to be most familiar with the environment. Mm-hmm. A lot of people get confused driving around a different city. And so if they took the test here, they may very well fail just because they aren't familiar with the environment. Wow. You're giving our listeners a whole new way to kind of um, like game the system, as it were. So awesome. Well, Dr. Anderson, thanks for coming on the podcast. I look forward to uh, learning more about the learning communities and we'll have you back soon. Thanks, Dr. Chan. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.